Welcome to The Hoop Commitment. I'm your host, Mike Nielsen. Join me every week to get inside the greatest minds in basketball nutrition, training, and leadership to elevate your game and improve the way you eat, train, and lead. Welcome to episode 92. All right, the verdict's in, and I have my guest all picked out for the 100th episode. Now, all that's left to do is set up a date to record it. And so thanks to all of you who reached out and gave me suggestions. This has been a great journey for me, and it's cool to hear all your feedback on your favorite episodes. Some people like the nutrition information, while others gravitate towards leadership. And some people like hearing my solo episodes, while others love listening to my guests. And so if I don't hear any different, I'm going to keep moving forward with the eat, train, lead model and do all of the above. And now today's guest fits into the training bucket. Eric Schmidt is the head strength and conditioning coach for the Memphis Grizzlies. And I was lucky enough to connect with him because he's currently training two of Gonzaga's finest, Brandon Clark and Killian Tilly. Before joining the Grizzlies, Eric was the director of sports performance at UC Santa Barbara. And today I picked his brain on using plyometrics to improve explosiveness on the court. And I asked him about his favorite exercise and how he handles training in and out of season. Here's Eric Schmidt. Eric, welcome to the Hoop Commitment Podcast. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm actually feeling great, but as everyone can tell, I'm a little stuffy. No COVID, just a head cold. Uh, But no, I'm feeling great, man. I'm excited to have you on because... I was talking with Killian Tilly. He mm-hmm. came back in the off season and I'm always picking the guy's brains when they come back. Tell me about your strength conditioning program. Who are you working with? And he immediately started bragging about you. He loves all the stuff you're doing. So once yeah, again, it's all about who you know. Now you and I are friends because of Tilly. Yep. Yep. I know. Small world. Small world. We're bound to be connected by someone. But yeah, Killian, Killian's the man. Yeah, he is. He's pretty special, man. And he spoke so highly of you and for all our listeners, I'd love to start out by just hearing your journey. How do you become an NBA strength coach? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, you know, I guess we all have our, our unique individual journeys, but didn't, didn't necessarily plan to, to make my way here. But, you know, I started out, I guess my, my first job was in college at UCLA. So started out after, after graduate school at UCLA and working on the Olympic sports side. And so I worked with just a number of different sports from soccer to water polo to golf um, and spent a few years uh, at UCLA. And it was while I was at UCLA, I actually lived with uh, my buddy, Chris Chase, who was at USC at the time. And, uh, and so we lived together and we both worked in Olympic sports and we had met in grad school um, over in, in Springfield College. And so that was sort of my my connection there. That that little seed was planted. Uh, we became really really close, good friends, and obviously roommates. Spent three years at UCLA. Went to uh, UC Santa Barbara, and that was where I actually got my first taste into Division One men's basketball. So I spent three years at, at UC Santa Barbara as the director of of sports performance there, and you know worked with a number of different sports. Oversaw that department. There's 21 uh, varsity sports there. And um, really got a got a love for for basketball, college basketball, and just you know such a fun sport to work with. And then my connection with with Chris Chase kind of came back around. Uh, he was with the Memphis Grizzlies, and and they had a an opening there. And sort of you know we had 
kept in touch, still really good friends. So that opened up and, and was able to, to take the head strength conditioning job at the Memphis Grizzlies. And I've been here since 2019. So yeah, I spent most of my career in college, but last year and a half has been, been here in the NBA. When did you know that you wanted to be a strength coach? Was that something that you knew in high school or was that as you kind of got into your graduate work? Yeah, you know, actually my undergrad was really where where I kind of figured it out. And I, and I figured it out in a, in an interesting way. I just, I really liked, I was a personal trainer uh, when I was an, an undergrad and, and I dabbled in just the typical, you know, bodybuilding style weightlifting when I was in high school and whatnot. And, and I had some buddies that gravitated towards, you know, just towards working out with me and they seemed to, you know, I was really interested in it. So I'm more interested than, than them. So I guess I was just one little step ahead. And so they would, you know, start working out with me and, and, uh, just really enjoyed that and carried that into my undergrad where I was personal trainer. And, um, there was a specific moment when I had applied for this internship and, you know, it was, it was with a sports performance facility, but I, I honestly still didn't even know what strength conditioning really was. And it was like my first week at that internship where one of the, the coaches there brought up, you know, strength conditioning and college strength conditioning and whatnot. And I was like, huh, so you can just work with athletes. Like, it's not like I got to do the general pop here. And then every once in a while I get this high school kid coming in. And, and so they, yeah, he was like, yeah, you can absolutely do that. There's plenty of jobs like that. And so I remember going home and, and uh, I actually Googled strength coach and Mike Boyle strength coach.com pops up and you could join the site for like a dollar this point, this is like 2008 or something like that. So I joined the site and started reading the forums and looking at bios and realizing like, oh man, people are making a, you could definitely make a profession out of this. And so just randomly found my way into this strengthcoach.com, uh, Mike Boyle network of people. And, and that sort of guided my, my direction there for the last, for the next few years and ended up, you know, going to grad school at Springfield college, which is where Mike Boyle actually went. Yeah, ended up interning for him, you know, later later on uh, the the following year and stuff. So, yeah, it was it was I was always interested in in training, uh, but you know, piecing that together with with a love of athletics and, and involved in that environment kind of happened right in my undergrad and and kind of grew from there. That's so funny. That's a little similar to my story, which was someone has suggested, "Hey, why don't you become a personal trainer or a strength coach?" And yeah. the thought had never crossed my mind. And as I kind of chewed on it for a little bit, it was like this huge aha moment. I'm like, wait, you can make a career out about of learning <laughs> about nutrition and leadership and, and strength and, and working out. I'm like, are you serious? And <laughs> wear sweatpants every day. Oh, I know. Well, I call it a business suit because my sweatpants <laughs> top and bottom match. And so, you know, most people call it a sweatsuit. I call it a business suit. <laughs> business suit. I love it. So tell me about the differences between the college basketball setting versus the NBA setting. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's quite a few. I'd say the biggest difference is the schedule, you know, college schedule is much shorter, uh, fewer games, bigger breaks between games, less travel, you know, that sort of thing. So in, in the NBA, it really is a, it really is a different world. You know, this is kind of my first year uh, traveling. It's my first full season. So it's my first year just traveling and kind of, being involved in, in the day to day and, and the toll that that takes just on, just on the staff, you know, and, and we're not out having to go out there and, and play under the bright lights, you know, with all the pressure and whatnot. So it's a, uh, it's a different beast when you think about the schedule and the demand of that schedule and just the amount of games and um, you know, and then obviously there's pieces of the, of the sport that are, that are quite different as well. You know, the speed of the game, uh, the pace is just, is just unbelievable. And, and you really can't, 
you know, no one can hide out there. It's, uh, you know, everybody's, everybody's the best league in the world. So, you know, everybody's really at that elite level. And so it's, uh, it's, it's impressive to, to see top to bottom, just how, how talented, you know, the rosters are where maybe in college, you have a few guys that are obviously standouts and, and, you know, we'll make it to that level, but to, to be involved in, in the NBA and, and see the, what these guys are doing on a day-to-day basis is just quite impressive. But yeah, there's, there's a lot. The schedule is just, I'd say the biggest thing and, and the craziest difference for sure. What kind of adjustments have you had to make coaching wise, you know, in the college setting, you're training 18 to 22 year olds and, and some, you know, way they might have to do what you say because you're their coach where in the NBA probably could be a little different scenario. They even could have their own strength coach, correct? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's definitely a thing too. It's, I guess the biggest adjustments just off the bat based on that, on that schedule is that your most of your training ends up being in season uh, when you're in the NBA. Um, you really don't have a ton of time um, for that developmental period and in, in the off season and even in the off season, not everyone's going to be around, you know, so you're actually, you know, you're even limited there at times with certain guys, you know, versus again, in, in college, you have a really long off season or a longer off season, in your season. So that, that's a definitely a big piece of it. And then, yeah, as far as, you know, the environment and the relationships go, it's certainly, there is, there is certain, some, some differences there for sure. Uh, you know, in college generally you're doing small group training or, or team, you know, full team training, but you know, in the NBA and even, even in during COVID times, I think even more so with some of the regulations, we were pretty much going one-on-one for the entire time. So I'm doing, you know, hour long or half hour long sessions with players uh, individually. And yeah, it's different to work with maybe an 18 to 21 year old versus a, a 30 year old, you know, someone who's who's similar in age to you. That's definitely got got some uh, uniqueness to it. You know, these guys are doing this for a living. So obviously, they want to have a say in some of the things for sure. And I actually want to, I want to hear what they have to say, you know, they've made it to this level, uh, certainly without me. So getting getting their perspective on uh, what matters and what works for them is definitely a uh, a big piece of that. And yeah, just, you know, there, there's certainly some, some organizations and some uh, players do have their own guys that, that do come in. The guys that I work with don't, you know, they, they work directly with me. So I haven't run into, into that scenario, but certainly we work with a lot of coaches offsite in the off season and whatnot. So, so another, another uh, few, I guess, major differences to, to the, the college versus pro level. Have you noticed differences in intrinsic motivation between the college D1 basketball player and the NBA player? Yeah, at, you know, at times, at times, I think, uh, you know, I, I think guys that love to train just love to train um, regardless, you know, so you definitely have feel that at both levels, I guess. But like you said, in in, in college, maybe I could be a lot more pushy and not, you know, not compromise as, as much, I guess, and kind of forge this thing along. Whereas maybe in the pros, you got to have a little more give and take, I guess, at times. But yeah, there's certainly, you know, there's certainly that factor that plays in. And, and you know, again, going back to how just how wild the schedule is, that's a real factor, I guess, when guys are, are losing the you know, the intrinsic motivation. Sometimes I really want to dive into, into why that is, um, you know, considering just how, how much overtraining can be a, a variable that we want to pay attention to. And, and if guys are really losing their desire to, to want to do anything at all, you know, for the most part, I think, you know, we have such a young, a young group and such a great group of guys that their motivation is pretty high in order, you know, in terms of just understanding what it means to be a pro. And um, we have pretty motivated guys to begin with. So if, if there's ever a a problem with motivation, you know, it's, it's something I probably want to dive into, make sure that that guys are, uh, are getting enough recovery and, and rest and whatnot. So 
Well, we mentioned Killian Tilly, one of the mm-hmm. Zag greats. You have another Zag on oh, your yeah. squad, Brandon yeah. Clark. BC, the man. Tell me about coaching him. <laughs> Tell me about his athleticism because I remember when he came on campus, I didn't know much about him, and I saw him catch an alley-oop. And mm-hmm. Rui Hashimura was going up to grab the same ball. He was on defense. Brandon caught it in the air. They were both about 12 feet up in the air. And then Brandon, <laughs> it, it was like it was like a movie. Instead of Brandon coming down, he went up another six inches and dunked it. And I'm like, yeah, it seems weird seeing that like in real life, not on TV. Is he one of the better athletes that you've trained? Yeah, he's, I mean, and just, he's an unbelievable jumper, you know, I mean, his ability to, to go vertical is like, yeah, it's, it's, it's special to, to be able to witness, you know, um, consistently. And, uh, you know, it's not just the ability to, to jump high. It's the, it's the rate at which he can get there, you know, which I think is, is maybe a under, you know, maybe it's, it's not as appreciated as much as the kind of how quickly some of these guys can get up there. Um, and, and that's, you know, what makes them even more special when you're talking about getting rebounds and, and throwing dunks on people, you know, it's just, they'll beat you to the spot. And he's definitely one of those guys that, that has that, that gift. Um, and it's, it's fun to watch. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a monster. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head. The vertical is definitely off the charts, but he does it so quick. I love when you, mm-hmm. you know, blocking shots is so much about timing. And he gets mm-hmm. one, you know, the small guards try and get it over him. And he's so quick to get up there and pounce it. I mean, his, he's one of the best I've seen come through Gonzaga and, you know, in the last 25 yeah. years, excluding myself, of course, but <laughs> of course. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I know we all can't jump like Brandon, but tell me about some of the factors that go into building that elastic bouncy basketball player. When I think about, you know, creating that basketball athlete, what comes to your mind? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, beside the the skill component, which is obviously such a huge, huge piece to the game and and something that I certainly have no business uh, being in the gym trying to teach guys, you know, I think some of the physical characteristics that that go into being a, a great basketball player is, is the the speed and the power that these guys are able to generate and really the longevity as to how, how long they can, they can do that for one of the things that I always think about that's maybe underappreciated within the game is just the volume demand of of how far these guys got to run, you know, they're running over two miles um, on a game, you know, every single game. So to be able to, you know, to be quick, agile, um, powerful, fast, and, and really to be able to stop on a dime and, and, you know, all the skills that go into just the, the different ways that these guys are able to, to time things and, and leverage their bodies and do different, you know, just crazy, crazy athletic feats is, is, um, is special. So, you know, when I think about, what I can do to support that. I'm really looking at just building their, their bodies to be able to handle um, really first and foremost, handle the demand of the game and really appreciate the forces that are involved in the different, the different demands, you know? So what are the forces that are involved in being able to land, to cut, to run um, at that volume and to be able to do those things just consistently over the course of a long season and sort of what structures that takes its toll on in terms of, of uh, you know, their bodies. And then really just try to reconstruct the, uh, their bodies to be able to just handle those, those consistent demands is really what I think about. Because what I'm trying to do is just push Teague as far away from their systems as possible and really let them express their natural abilities. Because, you know, they got here without me 
Um, I've said that before, but uh, so I really want to just first and foremost, protect their, their superpowers as much as possible, you know, and then try to just push that, you know, push that fatigue and protect their, them, them from getting injuries and whatnot. So, you know, a lot goes into the game, feed power and, and capacity are the things that really come to mind. And then I just kind of look at the different, different ways their body breaks down and make sure that I'm protecting them from that as much as I can. Well, you mentioned you are a personal trainer, you know, you were in the gym with your buddies doing the bodybuilding type workouts. So you have experience with that. Mm -hmm. How are those workouts different than the Mm -hmm. workouts that you're going to do? Maybe even going back to your days at UCLA or the days when you were (laughs) training college athletes who maybe want to develop that power elasticity. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that you're doing differently with the, the athlete that wants to gain muscle strength, muscle size versus elasticity, vertical quickness. The thing that comes to mind is, you know, to be able to, you know, to be able to improve that vertical, the verticality, the quickness, those types of things. There's, there's specific methods that we would definitely want to use. And those methods that come to mind would be things that require high rates of force, you know, and so that could be anything from jumping, um, bounding, skipping, uh, hopping to maybe even, you know, Olympic lifting, and just ballistic type of activities, throwing med balls, different things that, again, just require higher rates of force. Um, but even beyond that, there's a foundation that is is really important to be able to, to develop. And that, it, that would just, you know, I just look at just general strength and general physical literacy and having the ability for the body to be able to get into different joint positions and to be able to handle, um, you know, uh, be able to have strength in those different positions. And so there's a, there's a number of different things that I think create a foundation to be able to at least get to get the most value out of maybe some of the methods that we would typically think of when it comes to building the explosive, powerful athlete. Um, And that would certainly be, I think it's certainly different than when I compare what I'm doing now versus what I was doing in college with other sports. I think the sport does demand some very specific things, especially at the highest level where they are specialists at this point, you know, even in, even in college, we maybe think of things maybe a little bit more generally in terms of uh, just developing this wide base of, of physical literacy. But, you know, at the, at this level, basketball tells me a lot about where, you know, what's going to break down and, and how that's going to break down. And so there's definitely some, um, some important structures that we want to maybe add a little bit extra uh, protection to and develop even, even more so than just maybe a, a generalized approach. But I think all in all, a really good foundation of movement quality, a really good foundation of general strength, and then building some of the more explosive, uh, powerful qualities on top of that really uh, pays off. I love how you started with the foundational piece of it, because I think about like in terms of basketball, so many of my athletes, players want to be able to expand their range, which is a great quality. Mm-hmm. They say Trey Young shooting from 40 feet. But if your form is bad, you probably want to work on your the foundational form before you start working on shooting from 20 feet, 30 feet all the way out. So I love how we yeah. started with those general straight capabilities. Assuming that an athlete has those things, where do things like plyometrics fit in? Matter of fact, if you wouldn't mind even kind of defining for the audience you know, what plyometrics are and kind of how they fit into your program design. Yeah. You know, when I think of, of plyometric training, I'm really thinking about uh, elastic strength. I'm thinking about just qualities that require this, this quick, powerful, um, stretch, shortened cycle activity 
where we're utilizing more of our elastic components in our bodies. So thinking about, you know, stiffening up our muscles and letting our tendons sort of stretch and rebound. That's when I think about when I think about plyometric activities and that utilizes again, elastic energy versus maybe some of the, the mechanical um, energy that we're, we're generating with, with like ATP having to have these contraction cycles and whatnot. So um, plyometrics to me are, are really intentional, fast, explosive activities that I typically associate um, from a, you know, a methods perspective with like jumping, skipping, bounding, those types of things. Although if you think about running and sprinting, that is clearly could be, you know, bucketed into that plyometric category. But I certainly think of, you know, when I'm trying to build some of these elastic qualities and this elastic strength quality with, with basketball specifically, I'm typically doing that with jumps, um, hops and bounds and things like that. Well, you mentioned you, most of the training that you do in the NBA is in season because it's so long. Mm. You're trying to hold guys together. Do you find yourself as a whole using less plyometrics in the NBA level than you would have in the college or you just using them differently or different levels of plyometrics? Yeah, that's a great question because uh, definitely, definitely use them less. Again, going back to that, that schedule, you know, it's really a, an eight month in season, maybe a four month off season versus college where you may have a four month in season and an eight month off season. So certainly more time to maybe uh, get into some of that high plyometric type activity, you know, stuff within the programs and whatnot. But at the end of the day, you know, if you actually look at, you know, obviously looking at basketball, tons of plyometrics going on in basketball, you know? And so it's not like I have to be the person that implements that for the athlete to actually acquire some, some of these, uh, you know, adaptations from plyometrics specifically, because the game certainly has a high element of jumping, cutting, sprinting, um, changing direction that again is, is challenging that stretch shortened cycle at a really high level. So yeah, I definitely find myself using much less on that side, uh, in season, hardly any depending on, uh, but really depending on the guys that I'm working with, if it's a high minute guy versus maybe somebody who's, who's in and out of the rotation where we actually can get into some of that. But, um, for the most part, yeah, I use, a, I used a ton more in, uh, in college than I did uh, at this level for sure. Yeah. It almost has to be like, you're looking at the total demand of an athlete and you're trying to fill in the gaps a little bit. And so if it's probably a bench player, that's maybe not seen as many minutes, you might have to be able to ramp up those quick, short, elastic movements versus mm -hmm. a guy like maybe Brandon, who's getting more minutes that's already so elastic. You're probably mm -hmm. trying to offset that through other modalities. And, and someone like Brandon that already has so much of that, are you doing more slow controlled traditional strength stuff? Are you doing more yoga type stuff that's going to create more controlled contractions, you know, less demand on the joints? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question too. Yeah. I think I look at, you know, you sort of look at like how to even, how, how do people even define plyometrics and some of the definitions look at like fast versus uh, slow um, contractions and so that's like 0.25 seconds being maybe fast, really, really elastic. And then, you know, maybe 0.25 seconds and, and slower being the slow forms of plyometrics where there's maybe a little bit more muscular involvement. And I think the people that are really good and really, I should say, really quick and explosive, the really freak jumper type people that we're, we're thinking of, they generally are are using that that more of those fast contraction, really high, like elastic strain type activities where the, the tendons are getting a ton of 
a ton of beating there because that's primarily how they're generating um, their explosiveness. And so certainly doing that for extended, you know, really extended periods of time might present um, some structural challenges to their body. And so by, by maybe going into some of the slower, more muscular uh, type involved strategies can maybe buffer some of that and support them alongside obviously some really good strength training and really just kind of buttoning up some, some good joint positions, um, I think goes, goes a long way. So in a lot of ways in general, I, I typically look at kind of that delineation of maybe fast and slow, and you, you pretty much can start to like pinpoint your athletes as to like where they fall along that continuum. And a lot of times I'm trying to maybe forge the opposite, um, opposite contraction types in order to and just allow them a little bit more variance in their strategies so that we can buffer some of those forces a little bit more appropriately for sure. So, so when we're thinking about something like a depth jump, would that be considered one of those fast, more high intensity, um, contractions for a plyometric? Yeah, I definitely would say it's a high intensity because yeah, depth jumps, uh, depending on how you define them too. I think I've, I've seen people define maybe depth jumps a little bit differently, but if you're certainly, if the height of the jump is higher than somebody is capable of, of getting on their own, um, where you're really stressing those, uh, those tendons and, and really the joints and the muscles, I mean, everything's going to be stressed. Then I definitely would say, yeah, that that's how I would, I would think about like a depth jump. So something that, you know, somebody jumping off like a, or, or stepping off like a 30 inch box or a 30, you know, 40 inch box, something that maybe they're incapable of actually getting to on their own that that's going to be a high intensity activity for sure. But you probably going to spend a decent amount of time on the ground by doing more of a, a depth jump and kind of flexing at the, you know, ankles, knees, and hips versus maybe something like a drop jump, which is again, a little bit of a semantics thing, but a drop jump being less knee, less ankle, knee and hip bending and really trying to get off the ground where the intent is to get off the ground as quick as possible. Generally a drop jump is going to challenge the, again, the, the tendons and the joints a little bit more aggressively than even, even a depth jump where you're just dis- dispersing force through more joints and whatnot. So, but in, in any case, they're both versions of things that are really, really stressful and challenging on the system for sure. So definitely takes a, a long time to work your way up to those, those levels uh, for, for guys to be able to maybe implement for me to be able to implement those consistently. I think there's a lot of training prior to, to getting to that level because it's definitely really stressful. Where does a good old jump rope fit in? <laughs> yeah, great question. Jump rope to me fits into this kind of like this short coupled, um, usually extensive kind of category. So something that you, you're typically focusing on, on lower ground reaction forces, quick actions, but a lot of repetitions. You can go for a decent period of time. That's kind of where jump rope fits into me. And jump rope's a great, uh, really a great tool to work on. I think one of the main, one of the important components of short coupled activities, I guess, or quick activities, which is the foot and ankle complex, which maybe doesn't get a lot of love in terms of the importance of kind of a, you know, tendon stiffness and, and foot and ankle stiffness and how important that is. So jump rope does a great job of really training that specifically. So, but yeah, it fits into that kind of, for me, it, it really fits into kind of the base building component of when I'm thinking about kind of building out these, these jump volumes. It really fits into that base, that kind of base region, that general physical preparation uh, part. Well, if we have the depth and drop jumps, maybe on one end of the spectrum for people that are more advanced, have higher training volumes, and we can put jump ropes somewhere like a nice foundational exercise. What are some other exercises 
along that spectrum that you would include in your program design? There's sort of three categories that I think of. There's sort of these in-place categories and the in-place categories would have things like jump rope and they would have things like, I guess, different variations of elastic jumps or pogo jumps or, you know, there's a bunch of different names for them, but really you're looking at, at, again, not flexing much through the joints. So the hips, knees, ankles, staying relatively straight and trying to kind of be bouncy. That's that kind of the in-place jumps fits there. And then you can get into maybe some deeper range of motion type jumps, like low kettlebell hold jumps or counter movement jumps, squat jumps, things like that. So there's kind of this in-place category in my mind which is a great place to build like your, your jump volume. And then there's sort of the dynamic category in my mind where you're getting into now moving through space. So you're doing things like hurdle jumps. You're doing things like hurdle hops on one leg. Uh, you're doing things like bounds and different, uh, different bound variations and different skip variations. And there's sort of that dynamic piece. And then the last piece is that depth jump drop jump kind of in my mind. So those are kind of your three buckets and they are progressive in nature. Like I, I, I like to do a lot of stuff in that first domain, that in place domain before really moving on to maybe the dynamic, dynamic categories. And then certainly, you know, the cherry on top is when you get to that final category, which is your depth jumps and drop jumps. So that's sort of how I, I kind of my taxonomy for, for how I kind of think about some of those things. I love the three buckets. Three is my favorite number. So I love how you put that together. Tell (laughs) me about the three planes of motion. Are you incorporating that on any one of those levels? So we're doing jump rope. Is it worth your time to be jumping forward and backwards, side to side, rotating while you're doing even the in-place stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. And I I definitely think so. I I love the the in-place jumps for that reason of being able to be a little bit more dynamic in, in how you're, you know, how you're doing the different variations of jumps. So really exposing, you know, the foot, the knee, the hip, and really the structures involved there, you're really exposing them to different forces in different ways. So those in-place jumps are a great place to kind of provide some of that variety, which helps to, again, just allow the body to kind of strategize in different ways and certainly allows the forces to be dispersed amongst the body in different ways as well. So you're not kind of running into that monotonous, same, you know, same force going through the same joint in the same place over and over and over. So I love the variety there. I think that adds a a really, that's a really important, uh, important piece for sure. I've really liked in your second bucket, you know, the idea of being able to locomote or to travel while you're jumping, jumping on a box, being Mm -hmm. able to say, Hey, let's do an approach jump and let's you know, do a left-right approach. Now let's switch it to a right-left approach. And it's amazing to see the coordination difference. They're both going mm-hmm. sagittal plane forward, but leading with one foot versus the other. Or let's do a, a right shuffle jump versus a left mm-hmm. shuffle. The athletes, it's definitely different coordination-wise. And so I love just being able to, hey, if they have to do nine bucks box jumps to be able to split them up. And that way, I, you almost get repetition without repetition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. So tell me about how these fit into your program design. Are these things that you're doing at the beginning of the workout when your players are fresh? Are they stuff that you're coupling with a strength exercise? Does it matter where they fit your program? Yeah, I definitely think so. You know, I really like to look at the forces involved in the sport. And when you actually look at some of the forces involved, the highest forces that you're going to see in the sport of basketball are from these specific actions, you know, so from 
from really landing from jumps. You know, you got you're experiencing anywhere from really four to seven to even nine times your body weight in in forces just in some of these landing forces, different variations of jumps. So when you think about that and you think about, well, you know, doing that over and over and over is going to take its toll. I think preparing athletes to be able to handle these forces is absolutely critical to, to keep them healthy and, and to, um, again, just to be able to create this buffer of, of, you know, pushing fatigue as far away as possible to build a good foundation. It definitely fits into the program. The place that I see it fitting is, is maybe on those high, you know, high neuromuscular days. And so there's different ways that we might categorize those, but certainly on the, on the high days that are going to involve, you know, maybe, maybe some heavy strength training or maybe some like dynamic effort type training. I think jump training uh, really fits into the, into the day there. And generally speaking, it goes first. That's where I, I typically like to put it sort of on its own in a lot of way, in a lot of times. So I'll have, you know, an athlete come in and then they'll, you know, go through their general prep prep, uh, getting ready to do some of these more, you know, challenging, intense, intense activities. And they'll get into that fairly early on in the training session. And that'll primarily be the first component. Maybe the first 30% of the training will be um, some of this jump intense jump work. You know, there are times though, when maybe you, you do some more contrast work where maybe you're pairing it with say a strength exercise. And that maybe I, I typically like to do that when the volume's a little bit lower in the jump, in the jump space. So, you know, maybe in the beginning when I'm trying to build a foundation, I'll, I'll do that, that work on its own. And then as we carry forward in the off season, maybe we'll get into complexing some stuff where the jumps are really intense, but they're followed after a, you know, maybe a strength exercise and that fits really nicely there. So, um, yeah, I definitely, I definitely feel like it, it has a place because it is really the most uh, stressful activities on the body come from these ground reaction forces that are involved in just different, different actions of, of the sport. And, uh, you know, certainly landing is, is a big, is a big part of it. These guys go up and we love to see them go up, but you know, we got to remember that they got to come down and, and those forces are crazy high. So yeah, definitely important to, to have in the program somewhere. Yeah. So tell me about how you prepare the athlete to land. Is it by slowly building a volume and they start to get used to doing that? Or is it some of the traditional strength exercises that are going to be able to help with the support of that? Yeah, I think trying to piece it from all angles, you know, I kind of look at things like there's little breadcrumbs around, uh, you know, when you, when you start to analyze what athletes are good at and maybe what they struggle with, there's a lot of breadcrumbs that you can start to pick up. So, you know, if an athlete has, uh, you know, for instance, may not be a great squatter or something like that, has a hard time, you know, bringing their center of mass down, you might be able to think about how that maybe impacts their ability to buffer forces, you know, eccentrically when they're landing and stuff like that. Cause you'll generally see things occur when they're doing these slow movements that you can also see when they're doing some fast movements. And so definitely like trying to piece all those breadcrumbs together and improve their quality of just bending joints, you know, just getting their center of mass to control itself as they, as they move down. And that could be done in the slow fashion, but it could also be done, you know, in a fast action. So I think it's finding the appropriate places to, to put them in different domains of your exercise, maybe your exercise menu, finding the appropriate place to put them is probably, is probably the most critical and then progressing things from there. So I think it's, it's definitely a, a multivariant approach to trying to cover all bases, but, but uh, you can usually see where one, where they struggle with, with one thing, they'll struggle with multiple things that have uh, implications in, in the same joints and the same motions and patterns and whatnot. So putting that all together is really important. 
Have you noticed with the athletes you've trained at all levels that the better jumpers are the ones that respond best to jump training? It's kind of like the rich get richer. Have you noticed that or have you seen it across the board where everyone that does a plyometric or quickness jump program kind of experiences similar results? Yeah, that's a great question. It's probably different now than when I think about my experience in college, because in college, I would spend a good amount of time early in the development process. So freshman year, sophomore, you're not doing a ton of jump work and you'd see jumps improve because you're just, you're, you're improving there, you know, all the, the joints and the muscles that are involved in the actual jumping activity, you're actually just improving their force generating and force absorbing capacities. And so didn't have to do a ton there, but yeah, the, the people that are generally pretty good with jumping, they, yeah, they seem to improve with, with jumping. And I think it's just because their superpowers are to, to utilize those, those strategies um, to accomplish you know, the tasks of sport that they're, that they're dominating. And so by just doing more of that, they seem to improve that quite a bit, but just again, a general physical program, you know, physical training program that develops general strength and movement quality. You see a lot of improvements uh, early on, especially with young athletes. When do you know that they're ready for that second or even that third bucket that is more intense plyometrics? Are there strength markers or is it just your eye? Is it the amount of time they've been with you before you feel comfortable being able to move them on to the next spot? Yeah, I, it's another great question. I got some, some general strength markers in my mind, you know, things that I'd like to see from them, both unilateral, bilateral squatting and hinging, um, you know, just activities that are altering their center of mass in different ways that are going to challenge their abilities to, to again, absorb and, and produce force. So that. That's definitely a component. I know, like, I th- always think about, like, the, I think it was the NSCA textbook when I was, like, <laughs> you know, when I was in, getting my CSCS back in the day where it's, like, you got to have, like, a 2.5 times body weight squat. And then everyone's, like, I, you know, I, I remember thinking, like, oh, that's ridiculous. If you watch sport, they're doing plyometrics, you know. But I do think there is something to respecting maybe the the volume necessary to actually acquire some of these really meaningful changes. And that volume needs to be built on a foundation of, of strength that their body can actually handle. And especially if we're actually talking about some serious aggressive plyometrics, you know, so there's definitely some markers in my mind that are important for them to be able to do um, strength wise. And then from there, I do think it's about just building their, their tolerance up with certain volumes that is going to be a little bit independent, you know, uh, individual for, for each guy and their body type and sort of their experience. But Really, when you can see their ability to just fluidly coordinated transfer of force and and you can see that without this fatigue and you can really build these things out, I think um, you're able to, again, progress guys forward with maybe a little bit of your eye, but certainly there's a there's a good amount of time that goes into actually getting guys up to that point where they're they're doing some serious like depth jumps and whatnot. But it's certainly not a, a you know, a, a perfect straight road for everybody that you could just kind of throw out. We'll just do a b and c and then they're there you know i think it's uh there's there's quite a lot involved there well now this is my podcast so i get to ask my questions and usually it always revolves back to either how it impacts me or it impacts my kids so this one's for my son who's Mm. in junior high i'd love to find out at what age would you feel comfortable having your son or daughter start a strength conditioning program and then at what age or at what point would you start wanting to start adding in some of the plyometrics even at a low level and kind of building up to maybe some of that second or third bucket. 
Gosh, a great question. And one I'm probably highly underqualified to answer. I have no kids and I haven't trained kids in a really long time, but, um, you know, and I'm a strength coach. So like my kid's going to probably be, you know, under a bar, like a, a light bar, but you know, early, early on, you know, but I think probably, uh, looking at some of the the physical maturity that needs to be, you know, developed before, you know, maybe they get into really aggressive activities. But again, if you look at any sport, even when they're, you know, seven, eight years old playing, playing, you know, soccer club, soccer, they're, they're running around, they're jumping around or basketball, they're running around, jumping around. I mean, those things are involved. So, you know, I would probably, <laughs> I'd try to keep things as fun as possible, maybe as unstructured as possible uh, for, for a while there. Um, but maybe when they're getting into that 11, 12, 13 year, year, um, year old and starting to get into the puberty age, that's when maybe they get on something a little bit more structured with, from a, from a training standpoint. And, um, but certainly have, make sure they're having a good time and they're doing a lot of different general movements. Uh, but certainly I think they, they'd be able to get into different variations of, of plyometrics and jumping and, and running and sprinting and cutting and doing all those things. But yeah, I'm definitely highly underqualified to answer, <laughs> answer that specifically. Cause I, I don't specialize in, in working with kids and I haven't worked with kids for a really long time. Oh, that was perfect. I was just hoping you wouldn't say anything too crazy or say, I wouldn't have my son training until he's in high school because my son's 13 and we just started our first strength program. Oh, nice. And nice. There I you go. So when, should we, when should we start? Now I got to ask you, when should we start? <laughs> well, I, I love your answer. I, the best part about interviewing all these experts on the podcast is all the experts are not sure. It's the people that have never studied, don't have any degrees. They know all the answers, you know? Yeah, of course. (laughs) When we get someone like you, who's, this is what you do for a living with the best basketball players in the world. A lot of it is, it depends, you know, you take each person as an individual. And so that's what I've done with my son. It's kind of funny. He's the strength coach's son. And so of course he's the the gangly skinny one. And I'm like, (laughs) you know, but he's just, he's tall and he's, you know, growing into his own. So we waited a little bit longer, but he really wanted to get going. And so uh, my audience knows I had open heart surgery this winter. I just started working out again. And so him and I, we can bench press the same amount of weight. We both can do 65 pounds now, you know, we're we're building our strength together. And most of it is he wants to do it. And I think that's the big part. If it's driven from the athlete, they're going to pay attention to the form versus we know so much of training is mental. It's the mind and it's the spirit. And if they're doing it for someone else, they're not going to see the benefits. Yeah. So that's yeah. my, it depends answer. For sure. Now it's a great answer. Cause I, you know, even going back to what you said, like the, he has to want to do it, you know, it's, it's, uh, working in college was really, it's eye opening to see how many and working in different sports, just how many kids come in and, and sort of start to lose their, their love of the game of, of what they spent so much time in their lives trying, you know, and probably really enjoying doing, and that I think comes down to just burnout. You know, I think uh, the college age is really where, I mean, there's a lot of other things going on when you get to college as a, as a young, you know, 17, 18 year old person, but, but yeah, seeing some of that burnout firsthand for so many years and just how many kids just stepped away, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's sort it's pretty sad, you know, and you think about probably stems, a lot of that stems from maybe specializing so early where you just sort of lose your desire to, to compete in the thing that you probably love competing in. So yeah, I would definitely try to delay things, delay things a little while, but also make sure that it's, it's on their terms, right? Like you said, and just making sure that they want to do it because 
you know, the, the joy of it all is, is so important to maintain. And I think that's a, that's a big key. I'm really big into the minimum effective dose right now, because I think yeah. social media, it's so inspiring and powerful to see these athletes that are grinding and out doing these hard workouts. And it's, it's even me and I know better. It almost kind of stands, well, I'm not working out if it's not this. Mm. And I love, you know, keeping it fun and then starting really easy and light, knowing that if they're enjoying it and they're finding success and they're consistent with it, it doesn't have to be the hardest workout because the mm. minimum effective dose, gosh, if he's starting when he's now he's an eighth, an eighth grader, he's got another five years, you know, before he finishes mm -hmm. his high school career versus the people that are all or nothing. I think those are the ones that really tend to burn out, get injured. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's no progression. If you've already started at a hundred percent intensity, where do you go? Yeah. Where do you go from there? Exactly. It's like, uh, you know, the, the best way to, to build your financial future is compound interest. Right. So it's like, it's little by little consistently over a long period of time. And I think that applies to training so, so well, because, again, as we know, as strength coaches, we've been in the game for a while and we see these people, you know, some of our athletes just come guns a blazing and they're in and they're out, you know, they're up and they're down, but it's the ones who, who kind of stay the course and, and build, you know, appropriately over the long duration that really are the most robust and resilient athletes. So it's so important to, to take your time for sure. Well, we already gave the high school athletes some great advice, but before we wrap up, is there anything about plyometrics, about working out? You know, there's so many people listening to this podcast. They're going to either want to be you and be an NBA strength coach, or they're going to want to play for you. What advice do you have to the aspiring athlete that wants to be able to prepare his body for the next level? Yeah, I think it goes back to what we were just saying, where it's it's slow and steady and just, you know, building appropriately um, and building, you know, building your body up as appropriately as possible. And I guess what that means would be just respecting where you're currently at and challenging yourself, but challenging yourself in ways that is safe and effective. And so, you know, what what I generally say is like you need to be able to I'd love for athletes to have this very wide base of physical literacy and and being able to do um, foundational uh, patterns and foundational exercises really well, um, you know. And so, what does that mean? That means being able to do really rock solid push ups, really rock solid pull ups, uh, being able to squat with body weight, being able to squat with you know with in different ways with weight, um, just do all these different patterns. It's just having this wide base of physical uh, physical literacy is so i think just so important um it brings to mind this this documentary which is a really awesome documentary by the way that i just watched called the motivation factor where they they looked at a they looked at a physical ed program in like the 60s and their their standards across the board were so fascinating to me just thinking about how many kids probably have no chance um being able to do these things but it's like 30 pull-ups and you know 100 push-ups and just this just general standard of, of physical you know prowess that these high school kids uh, displayed and there was like hundreds of them. And I just think like, yeah, we've, we probably missed out on that. We don't get that anymore. So, you know, if I'm a young athlete, I'm just thinking, you know, how do I, how do I build this wide base of, of abilities? Because ultimately what I'm doing is creating a buffer system that is going to allow me is allow my body to handle a lot of rigorous demands over the course of, of a long period of time. And if I can do that and be able to move at a high level and get my body into different positions safely and effectively and then obviously have strength in those positions that can, that's going to really carry me a long way so find someone qualified find somebody who's who's not you know doing anything 
too sexy, but just kind of hammering those fundamentals and making sure that you're, you're building up, like you said, really progressively and, and not, you know, not being in a rush. I think that's, that's key. It's a long game, you know? I love it, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your wisdom. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Uh, probably, probably through the gram, right? Um, I, Instagram is probably the easiest way. So coach E Schmidt, um, is my handle on, on Instagram. People can hit me up there. Um, but that's, that's about the only social media outlet I, I use. And, and even as you probably know, not, not super frequently. So, uh, take a while to get back to you from time to time, but yeah, that's probably the best way to find me. Awesome, man. Well, it was so great connecting. I owe Tilly a big favor now since he, uh, he, was, our, he was our middle man. Um, yeah. But thanks for sharing your wisdom and being part of the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Now that's a wrap on episode 92. And if you haven't already, head over to hoopcommitment.com and grab some of the freebies that I've created to help you with your nutrition, training, and leadership. I've got free basketball menus, court training workouts, and a free five-day basketball leadership course. And to all of you who are committed, we'll earn your X.